0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Subtle changes in wind patterns nudge the birds and the flying eyes, first in one direction, then another. From the ground, passerbys who look up often note this and feel sympathy for both the gulls and the wing contraptions. They're trapped, the observers say. But if the observers continue to watch, they notice something quite different. What at first appear to be random turns and pivots are anything but. The gulls and the maras aren't battling their wind. They are allied to it. For long periods they ride on the gusts like ships on the sea, hardly flapping their wings except when using them to turn and dive and when either group, the feathered or the mechanistic, is done with their time in the sky, they glide off for their home perches, whether out to sea or on a government ship in the South Bay. The observers shake their heads and feel sorry for them, while at the same time sure of their own superiority. On the ground, they are free to go wherever they want, whenever they want. They aren't slaves to the whims of the air, they declare, which is true enough, but if they were to look further, The observers will see how they are also trapped and by something more prosaic and sinister.
0: Richard Cadry is the New York Times best-selling author of the Sandman Slim Supernatural Noir books. It's in development as a feature film. His other books include Hollywood Dead, The Everything Box, Metrophage, and Butcher Bird, and he also writes comics and screenplays. His new novel is The Grand Dark. Thank you for joining me, Richard.
1: Thank you very much. I'm
0: happy to be here. This is such an interesting book because it is both it includes elements of fantasy and science fiction. It's also outside of your Sandman Slim series. Mm-hmm. What brought you to create Lower Prozawa? Is that ProJava. ProJava. I've
1: had that. I've had this idea in my head for years. Um, I've. N- almost always written about real places, uh, L.A., San Francisco, New York, things like that. I don't know why the idea of creating my own place got stuck in my head, maybe because a lot of what inspired the Grand Dark was real history and um, places like Berlin and Prague things like that, which I didn't want to use real places, so I ended up creating my own world in Lower Prajava. I was also inspired as a kid, um, reading the Vericonium books by M. John Harrison, mm. and more recently the uh, New Crobazon books by China Mievel. So the idea of creating that, uh, what, I guess what they call second world stories, uh, which had no interest for me for a long time. When I thought about the grand dark story suddenly seemed perfect.
0: I, I really love this setting did you do a lot of research to create this there's a, there's all sorts of touches that feels there's parts that feel like Nazi Germany there's parts that feel like uh, you know the the Slavic countries mm-hmm. more recently um, did, what kind of research did you do to create this world?
1: Uh, I did a lot um, a lot of it was inspired by the Weimar Republic which is after World War One, before World War Two, really the twenties. So it's, mm-hmm. it's it's pre-fascism. It's this sort of free-willing time. It, it's it's what's said at the beginning of the book: living between two wars. One war is over, but you know it didn't settle things, and you know another war is coming. So in this pressurized environment, you a, a new culture comes up that's a little wilder because. Like friends of mine who have been in real wars, uh, in in combat, every little pleasure when you're in in a war situation is exciting. Friends who were Vietnam vets told me about eating cookies, you (laughs) know, and it was just every cookie was just the most amazing cookie you could ever have. And I kind of felt, I, I feel the same way about the Weimar Republic for a lot of people, that we're trying to grab all the uh, sensations all the happiness we can so it's partying sex drugs and rock and roll all the time for a certain segment of that society and then you have other people who are trying to keep up with that who who aspire to that so it's a lot of it's that 1920s period in Germany it's not really that period but Weimar Germany inspired it and then I took that idea and twisted it and twisted it to come up with Lou, um, Lower Projava.
0: You know, I, I, one of the things I like about this book so much is that the the language is really beautiful. It, it struck me after I read it that when you're writing a book like this you have to be super precise with your language while never seeming that way. You want this book and it does feel like it was actually written in Lower Projava. But it wasn't. So you have to be really careful to use words to be really consistent in Mm -hmm. word use. So did you design the language for the book before you wrote the book?
1: Uh, The language developed as I was doing the first draft because I knew I had to write this book in a way that was unlike anything I'd written before. And you use the word precise. That's exactly what I knew I needed to come up with a language that fit the world so that it, 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 in a sense, was another, almost another subtle character oh, exactly. within the book. And I changed everything in my prose style, including literally how I paragraphed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the the way this book is paragraphed versus the way Sandman Slim is paragraphed, they're very different. Sandman Slim is very deliver- deliberately choppy and fast. Mm-hmm. And this is much longer. I, I never have, you know, like, I had they're like paragraphs in there that are half a page i would never ever do that in sandman slim
0: well you know but it does partake of some of that noir sensibility i sure. think and so um talk about uh you've written science fiction mm-hmm. you you've written horror fantasy i guess mm-hmm. uh, horror noir yeah. is, is i guess the the, the better term for, for sandman slim
1: um, it's not really, I, I'm going to stop you there for okay. a second, I, I, Sandman Slim is not horror, okay. a lot of people call it horror because there's monsters and right. hell, to me it's, it's, it is urban fantasy, it happens to have hellish elements, it happens to have <laughs> Lucifer in it, but it's not designed to shock you or, or to chill you the no. way horror is, to me there's a certain nihilism to horror and I don't think Sandman Slim is ever nihilistic.
0: No, you're not conjuring dread in those books. Yeah. And they, but you do use a lot of the elements of the horror. But I use world.
1: elements of horror, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh,
0: to, to, at the service of a, of a very noir, what are essentially noir storylines. Yes, very and I, much. And I think you do a fantastic job of that. Thank you. It's, Thank you. Those are, books are really fun. And I, I think this book is. Uh, actually pretty important. It was pretty weird to read this book during this time in our national history. It yeah. was a very, very strange. Did you anticipate that when you were writing it?
1: No, it was really funny to write write this book at this moment in history. I think I would have written a very different book under the Obama administration, or even George Bush. Things are darker now than I can ever remember them. I mean, we thought Reagan was monstrous. <laughs> and then... Trump comes along I, I, I the, the feel of creeping fascism uh, to me at least mm-hmm. uh, has never been stronger in America so that really did color the book in a lot of ways
0: yeah I, this book I you know I haven't didn't think about this this has a little bit of uh, uh,
1: Robert Penn Warren in it <laughs> oh god I hadn't thought of that I haven't read that guy in a long time. That's funny.
0: Yeah, but that's the, there's a bit of that coming through this now. Um, talk about creating the characters. Largo is such a great character, mm. and I, he he's a bicycle courier. I guess you might know some of them, bicycle couriers here in San Francisco.
1: Sure, I, I've known them over the years. So, Largo movie? Largo was the key to the whole book. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote, I sold a book on like 120 pages that I sort of dashed off very quickly in a couple of hotel rooms i actually wrote a big chunk of the first part of this book in a hotel room in denver mm-hmm. during a during a con it's largo was the key i didn't have largo's character down when i wrote those first 120 pages i kind of knew who he was but the first draft of this book didn't work and it didn't have a proper ending Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until that second draft of really sitting down with Largo and playing his shrink (laughs) that I finally got it. And when when I figured out what Largo's thing was, Mm -hmm. which is fear, that's what the whole book is about, is fear. Largo is consumed by it. Everybody is consumed by it in different ways to different degrees. It's a fear-based society. Mm -hmm. But Largo... Is consumed by it. I mean, he comes from the worst of the worst slums in the area. He managed to claw his way out, but I I come from some crappy circumstances. My mother came from very crappy circumstances. You always carry that with you, this dread in the back of your mind of, if I make one mistake, I'm going to end up right back where I was. And that's Largo right there. He, on the one hand, he's a 21-year-old guy with a cute girlfriend, an easy job, and lots of drugs, <laughs> I mean, he's like a lot of 21-year-olds now. But at the same time, every single action he takes, he's also double, you know, um, um, overthinking because, well, what if this is a mistake? What if this costs me my job? If I lose my job, boom, I'm back in, you know, um, Hexon Green. And I'll never get out of there. If I have to go back there, I will never get out again. It will destroy my life. I'll lose my my cool girlfriend. I'll lose my apartment. I'll lose everything. I have so little. And one false move could take everything away. And so that's really Largo's point of view. And when I figured that out, it changed the whole book. And it finally gave me the ending, the proper ending to the damn thing. I could not quite ever get there. But when I f- realized Largo's fear was central to everything that happens, there it was.
0: You know, one thing about Largo that I liked is that he's a pretty nice guy, mm-hmm. a- and I think that was that's really important. And that's kind of slowly revealed beneath the fear. But he is—he he cares about people. He cares about friends, and he does nice things in this book. And that's. I think one of the unexpected joys of reading this book is to find that your main character is not as dire as the circumstances that surround him and drive him. And you think at first, well, you've got to be a pretty terrible person to even, like, stay alive.
1: Right. Largo's a nice guy. And that's what I I wanted to write a character who was, again, unlike anything I'd done before. I write about powerful characters a Mm -hmm. lot. Stark. James Stark, Sandman Slim, very powerful, driven character. Even Coop in the Coop books mm-hmm. is still a very driven, powerful person. I want Largo to be a little lost. He's a nice guy who just wants to get along. That's all he cares about. And he is someone who'll go out of the way for his friends. He's nice to his girlfriend. But that nice guyness also has a dark side. Because in a society like Lower Pajava where the world is getting more and more dire, a nice guy who just wants to get by, like Largo, ignores the darkness closing in around him and the world. Most people do just want to get by day to day. They want to go to the movies. They want to have their job. They want to have their lovers. And it's, it, this is the part where, where it became more like real Weimar Germany. Um, or any place where fascism is creeping in, 99% of the population is going to ignore it because they just want to get along. It's either fear or it's apathy until it touches them directly. Most people don't want to take a stand until something forces them to. And that's what happens to Largo. A nice guy who doesn't, in some way, doesn't understand and in some ways ignores the creeping darkness until it hits him in the face and he's dragged into it and then he has to act to save himself and save a lot of other people.
0: I think one of the things you do really well in this book is to create um, with few words and a few simple uh, quote hand gestures uh, to create a really of the feel of a Full and complicated world with all sorts of things that we kind of understand, like the Maras and stuff
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and the, the Shimmeras, I think that, the, that those two elements of the world I, were super well done for me and really oh, s- essential and fun. So talk about creating those. A- and you do an amazing job of balancing the kind of the real and the fantastic and the science fictional elements you use, you have all the discipline of science fiction. Mm-hmm. All this stuff as we read it, we think this makes perfect sense. But also, it like most science, you know, you look at that T V behind you, that, that looks that's something I can say that's real and I understand how that I, I understand that it works, but not exactly how.
1: Yeah. Well, this is this is, goes back to taking something like Weimar Germany, twisting it by introducing these science fictional elements: the Mara automatons, the genetically engineered chimera. I wanted to create that. Okay, this is the real world. Here's a bike messenger. He goes along, and we have sort of gothic architecture. Oh wait, there's a genetically engineered organism going down the street eating the garbage. We don't have street cleaners because these little critters just come along and do it for us, which actually I I ripped off from reading about 19th century uh, accounts of New York City, where the city was full of pigs. People don't realize this. New York was just full of pigs that they let loose because they would eat the trash. And then they'd have to sort of deal with the pig detritus, but it was easier to deal with pig excrement than it was for the filth of all the tenements that would lie in the streets. So yeah, New York was a city of pigs at one point. And like chimeras, um, at least the little ones, um, served the same function. Now there are more sinister versions of chimeras. There are, you know, there are, there were the ones that um, are bred for war, war dogs essentially, which is you know, getting into that science fictional thing, the maras, the pressurization of creeping technology on workers. I wanted to bring those in as sort of fun elements, but also kind of modern elements of the sort of pressurization on a society, of this strangeness that people are again trying to go along with their regular lives, but there's this creeping weirdness around them at the same time. That maybe they understand, maybe they don't. I see a robot over there delivering lunch to somebody. Well, if I'm a bike messenger and I see a robot delivering stuff, that's scary. Oh yeah. Because you know it may that robot may be dumb now, but it's going to get smarter at some point. And in the course of the book, you see what happens because. All these little banal things, little critters that eat, eat the garbage, little machines that deliver lunch, are also part of the industrial, you know, the um, industrial war complex. So, yeah, it, it was a fun balance trying to create realism, fantasy, and science fiction simultaneously.
0: Well, I, I the book just felt to me was as exciting to read as it was to see something like a Blade Runner for the first time, mm-hmm. to see all those kind of details come by and be there long enough to create the whole backdrop in your mind. You, the, you know how, exactly how much to let work to let the reader do and how much work for you to do because this book reads like lightning. It's fast and it's, and it's really engaging. Um, it's called The Grand Arc. Yeah, and that's because that's the name of a, of the theater, the the, the Grand Darkness.
1: Right. the theater of Grand Darkness. It, the yeah, exactly. The theater of Grand
0: Darkness. I and I love that, and I love that how you use that to make storytelling. When you're telling a story, you make storytelling a plot point, yeah. <laughs> which is really great. No, but the, the Grand Dark. I'm slow on the uptake. I'm about halfway through the book, I'm ready. Grandeur. Wait, wait, wait. Theater, really gory theater. What am I thinking about? Oh,
1: Franginol. Absolutely, <laughs> and, that's exactly what it was. And,
0: and I thought you did such a great job of evoking that. So it oh, must have you. done a must have been fun to to uh, re- research that.
1: That was a lot of fun. And again, that's one of those things of taking something from the real world, that Grandinol theater from France bringing that into um, that, that kind of Teutonic setting, but then twisting it one more time by creating these, these sort of electronic, life-sized, oh. galvanic <laughs> puppets. And those were inspired by the Brothers Quay. If you've ever seen their stop-motion animations, uh, especially The Street of Crocodiles, mm-hmm. it's brilliant and unsettling and gorgeous. And I, I always thought like, well, what if you could make that life-size so that people could live in it? So if you really want a touchstone for um, the visuals, certainly of the theater, yeah, Grand Guignol, there are photos you can see of what those old theaters looked like, but also the Brothers Quay, Street of Crocodiles.
0: Wow. Oh, great. You know, and I thought that the, it, I could tell, one of the things that makes a big difference when you're reading a book is if you can tell how much fun the author is having mm. to writing it. And it seemed to me like you were just having a blast writing this, especially the, the plays, the stories within the stories that, of the uh-huh. plays. Did you? How far did you write those plays? I mean, I'd love to see some of those yeah. on the stage.
1: It was interesting. You know, there's a lot of a lot of juggling because yeah, I do describe several plays that take place in the theater, and that, that took a fair amount of putting a play in, and going, that's, that doesn't feel right, though. Oh, that's the wrong time for that kind of story. Some of them are just gore, the way the Grand Gagnol was, where it was just like, well, here's a lover who's mad at the other lover. There's a ghost, and we're going to throw acid in someone's face. The end. (laughs) Okay. They didn't have as many ghosts in in the real Gagnol stuff. Um, They had – it was much more grounded. People think it was all full of vampires and ghosts. The actual ones were much more about real people doing awful stuff. So I put a little more supernatural stuff in there sometimes. But it was fun to depict them, and it was fun to have them reflect what was going on in the world at the same time. And yeah, then that becomes part of the plot itself. And then I had all those little interstitial stories between chapters. Oh, yeah, Before, I love that. Yeah, the, those the nonfiction parts. The nonfiction <laughs> parts. And those were fun because some of them were significant where you have stories that expand and uh, show you more of the city, more of the class structure more of the history of the place and then you have store then you I I did stuff that was completely banal and I'm really obsessed with you know banalities in book how important that can be for setting up the world so one of the things I put in was a travel brochure oh yeah that was great yeah and then there's like a little a little instruction manual for when you buy your first Mara automaton Uh uh-huh little little things like that that People take for granted. I mean, we have little banalities every day, silly slang names for things, dumb little things we see on TV, ads and things like that. I love getting that because I think those tiny, silly things we take for granted do help ground the weirdest story.
0: Well, that's one thing. This felt like very realistic, and I think part of that has to do with the way you – the detail with which the world is crafted, but also the motivations of the characters. Do a really good job of setting up Largo and his girlfriend and the boss. I, I love His boss at the courier place, that guy is really great.
1: And I loved writing Bronca. Yeah, yeah
0: Bronca was was a lot of fun. And the Baron,
1: too. <laughs> oh, Baron Hillsworth Yeah, he was fun.
0: Now, uh, talk about uh, just when you... You were alluded to. You had to get um, Largo, right? Did, how much of the plot did you know going into this?
1: I knew the overall shape. Mm-hmm. The details um, came as I was sort of figuring the book out, like Largo's involvement with the scandal sheet.
0: Oh, that that is great.
1: Yeah, that that <laughs> did, that wasn't there uh, originally. Mm-hmm. That that kind of that kind of came out of nowhere, and I didn't know what's like. What the hell's he doing? But then it's like, oh, okay, I see I see where this is leading. I see how Largo would do this, why he would do this, and how it could be significant later. And again, becoming involved with a scandal sheet in the middle of a, of a society like this, that becomes a plot point too. The way news and pop culture is controlled has great significance on the population.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, there's a perfect example in this book somewhere along the line where they, I'm just thinking, Gaslighting. Yep. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know. Look at the National Enquirer right now. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, he works for something like a, a, you know, it's half weekly World News and half National Enquirer.
1: Exactly. (laughs)
0: Yeah. In the, uh, when you, one of the things that's nice too is that I think you do a good job of, uh, of, misdirection, and I'm, I'm guessing that comes a bit from having uh, the the hard work of putting out those Sandman Slim novels, which are really good and filled with mystery. So talk about the, because there's parts in here where you think, oh, it's going to go this way, and it's going to be really cool, and no, 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 no. It gets, gets Things get bad. So talk about, the, you know, just using the character arts to create misdirection.
1: That definitely comes out of writing the Sandman Slim books, because they are plot-wise, based on a lot of old mysteries, thrillers, and noir, so I could take some of those structural elements and tricks and bring them into what's a much more, in its own weird way, straightforward story, Mm -hmm. and yeah, hope to misdirect people and to surprise them. Surprise is always good. I mean, I think... Unless it's ridiculous. Yeah. But I think if you can bring people along, go like, Yeah, here's where the story's going. Oh, no, it's not <laughs> Some somebody does something as long as it's as long as it's keeping in character. You know, I think you can twist people and show them strange little acts as long as it makes sense for that character. So Largo goes some weird places in this book. Mm. But I think they all make sense within Largo's character I mean he ends up this is a guy who who has um, run away from physical confrontations and danger in his whole life and yet ends up in the middle of a battlefield
0: well and I think that you you do one that's another aspect uh, that you do really well the in uh, you know then writing 101 have a character arc the character has to change and so often that seems somewhat contrived but the way you did it with uh, Largo in this book, and took him from being, you know, the the kind of a, a slightly shrinking violet, mm-hmm. al- although no more than he you have to put out a, a hard face to even stay alive in this world. Right. But um, to to being a much more of a in control of his own circumstances, and willing to take both control and take responsibility, and I think mm-hmm. that's the. The aspects that make the book really rewarding to just to read.
1: I think it comes down to pushing characters. Think like in real life, mm-hmm. people change when they hit a wall, <laughs> and that's what happens to Largo several times in the book. And when you hit that wall in your life, what do you do? Do you just fall over, or do you change direction? And that's Largo when his girlfriend Remy goes missing what does he do when he decides to go looking for her what does he do when the police become involved in this situation and he's terrified of the police what does he do I wanted someone who was fearful and even weak in some ways To find something within himself he had no idea he possessed. So for all the grimness of the book, I wanted some optimism in there. I wanted a character who was more than he even he thought he was.
0: And I think you do that really well. That works and it makes the book really much more readable than just like, you know, a slow spiral down into darkness. I mean... I can get that in today's news
1: right right <laughs> so. and' I've, and I've written enough horror I, I know what horror looks like I've written straight horror I've written some really mean stuff and I had no interest in doing it here I wanted to tell a human story and I didn't want it to to just I didn't want to drag you through a big book like this I just leave you nowhere I I, I had to have an ending that meant something for the character but that wasn't hey, the world is hopeless, fuck you. <laughs> now, um,
0: when you... Uh, one of the, the aspects of this book that I really, really liked was the the way that you um, created, like, a, a conspiracy and, and mm-hmm. to, to, to slowly unravel that. And, and did you know... All the details of the conspiracy as you started, or did they kind of work themselves out in the language and the characters?
1: I knew the basics of the conspiracy. I didn't know, like, every single detail. Again, some of those worked themselves out as I was writing it. The, 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 the details emerge, But I knew the overall shape of what was going on and why it was going on. And Again, you know, it's a big conspiracy Having to do with kidnappings and um, again getting into into weird dark science. At the same time, it's kind of banal, you know. We're we're back to those little things where it's like we're gonna we're gonna do things to people, and they seem horrific, but at the same time, they're kind of dumb. <laughs> exactly. The results are kind of like, oh, really? That's what you wanted? That's the horrible thing you decided to do to people? And it is horrible. At the same time, what the person looks and acts like afterwards is kind of like, oh yeah, you're just kind of a, a dumb parent who wanted a who wanted a um, you know, an obedient child forever. And that gets down to what do what do people in power want? Control. That- and everything comes to that and absolute control is dumb. <laughs> it's the, what you do to a population under those circumstances turns them dumb, and that's what I wanted to play with.
0: Now, uh, you created a you did a fantastic detail of the city and, and a place outside of it, and, and but I'm wondering, do you think you could return to this place? Because it seems like I, I am I am anxious to have you explore this world.
1: I hope I get to write a second book. I mean, my publisher trusted me enough to let me do this one. And then we get, now we're into the mercenary part of, and real world part of publishing. If the book sells <laughs> enough, I will get to do a second book. And I have, I have a good chunk of a second book plotted out because I would really love to do it. Mm-hmm. And it will be a very different book. It'll have some of the same characters. It has a lot of new stuff. It'll take some of the minor characters from this book and blow them up into much bigger characters. So, I really want to come back to this world. I really and I really like some of the, um, like I say, one of the small characters I like is Margit, the revolutionary. Mm-hmm. She's not a you know she doesn't get a lot of screen time, but I like her a lot, and I would love to write more about Margit.
0: Well, I, I think that th- this brings up a. a... A, an aspect of the book that I really like is that uh, the political situation here and the economic situation do a fantastic job of elucidating those without having new, to resort to newspaper articles that just explain them right. <laughs> out and out. So talk about creating the economic and the political substructures that you know the characters are, need to move through. They need to be consistent mm-hmm. and uh, both within themselves and within the world, but also relatable to our world. And I think that's one of the things that about this book is that the economics and the politics are
1: all too familiar. Well, that was in some ways the easiest part because, you know, I was trying to make things dark and then I realized this stuff's already here. You have someone like Trump in absolute power who, who has complete control of an entire political party. So... The kind of creeping fascism that I'm writing about in the book is right here, right now. It was That was an easy thing to depict and to think about. The economics of Lower Prajava are also easy to think about. To me, I live in San Francisco. I've seen what gentrification does to places. And this is, in Lower Prajava, you have wartime gentrification where you have um, the... Elites from the better part of the city, high Prajava, moving into lower Prajava when the war starts, fleeing the the battle zones and completely changing the economics of uh, the lower city. So suddenly a city that was probably, you know, kind of mostly middle class, maybe a little upper middle class, is suddenly full of billionaires. (laughs) And how does that change things? And suddenly like a city like San Francisco which had a lot of artists musicians it had a lot of immigrants in it suddenly those people are being crushed uh, in the same way that all the tech people who are coming into San Francisco are changing the economics of the place suddenly your little $1,200 apartment is (laughs) $3,500 so I mean that's that's real world at least where I live right now so again we're back to everyday stuff, everyday back to banalities, back to, like, can I pay my rent? Well, and why can't I pay my rent? Oh, a billionaire moved in next door. Um, Billionaire doesn't care. A billionaire is going to buy up the whole block and make it into one big house, something like that. So it was those aspects of the story were really easy to come up with because they were right there in front of us. And you just... You just let them you know, expand a bit into this strange world uh, of Lower Prajava.
0: I, I think that uh, the, the way the book is plotted and written, you do a great job of like um, taking us into little side streets and to, to, to little side scenes where you give us this real deep flavor of the world but then take us back along the plot. And could you talk about creating those kind of like little eddies in the plot, I guess it was, and and whirlpools and tide pools and places where things kind of come up. But you do it. The pacing is really important because you never stay there too long and you always take us back to where things are getting dire, more dire, more fast every second.
1: Yeah, I like to do that. I mean, I do that in Sandman Slim sometimes because that's what landscapes are like, right? You're trying to walk from the bus, the bus stop to work, at the same time, sometimes out of the corner of your eye, you see an alley, you see a street where there's a whole other world going on. You're you're not part of what's going on down there. Maybe it's um, an immigrant community. Maybe it's an artist community. You don't quite know what what that, that little society in that side street is, but you're very aware of it and you're curious. And maybe you walk in, but like, oh, you know what? I got to get to work in 10 minutes. Or, you know, you're being chased by a gang and you run down a side street you've never been before. I want to show those little things that um, you see out of the corner of your eye in any city. You'd like to stay and explore it more. You'd like to... Uh, get to know it but you can't so what you see are these glimpses of whole other cultures you see the dock workers you see the um, prostitutes in another area you see the midden the place where all the uh, war goods come through all the uh, confiscated and stolen materials of war end up in one place because it's 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 one of those parts of town that always exists where it's a little shady. The cops don't even care about it because they know that the crime is too high to worry about and that if anything gets out of hand, they're just going to kill each other. They don't fucking care. So so it's fun to have those corner of the eye moments or traveling through um, one section of the city. And again, making it once you establish a couple of sections of... Oh, I just saw this out of the corner of my eye. Oh, I just saw this, and then something like the midden, which seems like we just saw it out of the corner of our eye, the midden then becomes something bigger. So you can kind of bring things, bring strange things in that way, and you can also, again, play with readers' expectations. This thing that seems so peripheral is now suddenly important. Uh, That
0: makes me think of Shuna Machina. What a fabulous oh. setting and place, and I, I, just that whole kind of idea of the... Of, and I think, again, a great bit of language they're calling all the critters uh, eugenics, which mm. has a whole and pertinent and with us today kind of meaning right. in our world, but also we understand that it, we're talking about genetically modified critters, and, and that kind of, I, I could just see that kind of, the giant, you know, uh, the the silver eagle head kind of, you know, from the from the bastions of the factory. Yeah. <laughs> very very Nazi. I thought you did a good job with that.
1: Thank you. I liked. The, I really wanted to write about the uh, Shinna machine, which essentially everyone thinks of as the armaments factory. Which again the war looms over the city and the Machina is the biggest thing in the city. It's the most important thing. But then you get inside and you realize, no, it's not just the armaments factory. It also controls all the automatons that people are using. It also controls the little chimeras, which, yes, are are referred to as eugenics. That's the the common name for all the genetically engineered organisms. And I definitely chose the word eugenics for its kind of chilling uh, effect. So to, to depict something that large that physically looms over the city and that culturally looms there, that was fun. That was, I mean, and that's purely right out of the movie Metropolis. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, that's that's exactly what that <laughs> I was. I
0: hadn't thought about it that, yeah, but perfect. Yeah, that's it, exactly, I guess, how I saw it in my mind, is like an extra scene in, in Metropolis. Yeah, dropped.
1: you know, there's a lot of that stuff. that. Infl- I mean, films uh, and music influenced this book as much as any of the books I researched. I mean, Three Penny Opera mm. is, is all through the book. I mean, I was actually playing excerpts of that when I was writing. You know, I had I had you know Udo Lemper oh, going on. Wow. You know, I had was playing songs like Ukali and uh, you know Mac the Knife, ver- different versions of Mac the Knife. There are a million of them. So that was that was definitely in my head. Those old, M, the old M movie with Peter Lorre. Oh
0: right, yeah.
1: All those those feelings that that depict old Berlin, the Doctor Mabusa movies. Mm. You know, I got a lot of the 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 and the graininess of Lower Pajava from films as much as, as the books I was using to research Germany and Grand Guignol Theater.
0: You know, one thing I just realized uh, sitting here was that um, the, the bicycle messenger is the best, um, I guess, analog to a detective in terms of access Easy access to the lowest rungs of society mm-hmm. and the highest rungs. Yeah. And that that's the, the utility of the detective, is that you get to see everything. Yep. The whole, the, the Sandman Slim knowledge, you, you see the whole hierarchy from the top to bottom. Right. And, and this does the same thing here. He's, he delivers in the most dire, terrifying places that he doesn't even want to go, but also in these kind of mansions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, except uh, the difference between uh, Sandman Slim or a private detective in a noir novel is they have power, mm-hmm. again, and Largo doesn't. So you have Largo, in, in many ways, doing the same job as a PI, only he's a kid, and he has no idea what he's doing, and he's pretty innocent and scared all the time. And that's what I wanted to depict, again, someone who does not have power, but is thrown into... All the situations in which you would expect and want someone with power because he might not be able to handle it the way Philip Marlowe or Sandman Slim could. He's just a kid. And,
0: and I think that for the, uh, his inexperience and seeing and naivete to a certain degree, seeing that, seeing his education, and it really takes a trip outside of where he lives. To, to to get that cemented that he's mm-hmm. he's got to grow up a bit i guess right. and and i so talk about the, uh, creating higher Pojava
1: i don't know how much i want, well see oh. high, high, high projava, you know i mean that's that's getting into some pl- plot points mm. that I don't know if I want to get too deeply into. No,
0: no, no. I I, I would agree, um, but I think it's a place that's away and outside and that, yeah. that's where he has a, a, a why he's forced to see
1: things he is differently. He's forced, absolutely, when he ends up in High Prajava he is forced to confront realities that he'd never even dreamed of before. In the city, he knew there were bad things going on. He knew there were bad people, but high prejava when he finally gets there to the war. What he finds is so much worse. He thinks it's going to be a bad place. I mean, literally, the moment he gets there, Steinmetz, the guy who helped get him there, says, so you thought it was going to kind of just be a city with, with with some rubble in the streets. It's not that, is it? No, it's just this blasted landscape. And... Largo has to trudge through literal mud and blood and bones to get what he's looking for.
0: Now, this made me think, too, that while we see all the edges of the war, we never really see the war, and I or I even see the, the enemy or have any idea of what, what that was about. And I think that that was a really smart decision on your part. Um, was it always that way or did we were there at in the earlier versions of the book, did we see more of the war or could we see more of the war in the the sequel?
1: The enemy was always the enemy. And I had no interest in creating like, Yes, the enemy is, you know, so and so country and this is this is what kind of government they have and this is what they want. Because it doesn't matter. It like nineteen eighty four, all that matters is the war. Mm-hmm. All that matters is a war. As long as we have a war, there are control mechanisms. You know, The government can exert control. The population has certain attitudes and fears. It doesn't matter who we're fighting. It just matters that we're fighting. And that's why the edges of the war we, we can see easily, but the center of the war is kind of mysterious because... uh, To bring it back to contemporary stuff, how many people really understand or even think daily like what's going on in Afghanistan? Who are we really fighting day to day? Why are we really fighting these people day to day? It kind of doesn't matter. Just the fact that we are at war and have been at war for a long time. And that creates certain pressures and control systems and, and excuses for the government to do certain things. So I never wanted to define the war beyond war itself.
0: That's an interesting de- decision. And you said when you were saying it doesn't matter who are fighting, I'm thinking North Korea, Iran, you yep. know, a lot of nukes, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And I think the one of the great powers of a, of a novel like this is how much, the more you immerse yourself in its strangeness, the more you are able to come back to what is supposed to be consensus reality and say boy this is pretty strange as well exactly <laughs> the, the uh, yeah. difference creates kind of a parallax effect
1: that's what I hope I'm glad to hear it worked for you that way I mean that's that's I kind of wanted to, to have people have that kind of weird recognition of like oh wait this isn't this thing that seems so strange When I step out of it for a moment and I turn on the news, it's not that strange after all. Yeah, you mentioned North Korea. You mentioned Iran. We've become almost numb to the concept of like, eh, maybe there's a nuclear war. (laughs) Eh, Trump's in power. Eh, maybe there's fascism. You know, I think that that's what I was sort of getting at with some of the haziness of what the war itself was. We've just become, eh, war.
0: Now, um when you're were creating uh the Baron Hellsworth, yeah. uh he is such an interesting character and a really, you know, kind of a, a key part. And and I I kept seeing Peter Cushing.
1: No, <laughs> oh, yeah, Peter Cushing could play uh Hellsworth. Yeah, yeah. He was an interesting character. He's an industrialist, he's a very smart man, he's a very ambitious man, he's been in power for a long time. Kind of based on the Krupp family in Germany, mm. but not a hundred percent. I wanted to take that concept of the powerful industrialist with connections to the government and humanize him in ways that are not sympathetic but understandable, or or seemingly understandable.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: And then revealed to be both sinister and getting back to kind of a banal evil.
0: Yeah, and I think that that works really well. It's it's really fun and... and I, I, there are parts of the book; it was so, it's so interesting. I can just go back and visit this book like a vacation, maybe a vacation. I would rather read read about than experience. <laughs> but I can go back, and there are some scenes where Bal- Baron Hellsworth just seemed like, uh, you know, like oh boy, this this is somebody. I think I kind of want to get to know him, and, yeah. and I look forward to where this. Oh, yeah, maybe not. And so yeah. that was a good, uh, 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 a wonderful. I guess a hinge point for the novel. It seemed like there yeah. could go a couple different ways at that point. Well, he's
1: a charming guy, you know. Monsters are always charming, <laughs> not always, but the more interesting monsters are always charming. I mean, look at Dracula. Dracula is, at least in the you know the old Bela Lugosi version, was supposed to be a really sexy seductive guy. Mm -hmm. Um, Less so on the Christopher Lee. Actually, maybe you could see, if you want to look at Dracula's, maybe Hellsworth is both um, Bela Lugosi's sexy vampire and um, Christopher Lee's version of Dracula, which is the animal Mm -hmm. version of Dracula. So he embodies both, you know, the worst, worst parts of the culture at the same time, both the old world charm that can come out of a society like that, which does mask a lot of uh, awful things. Um, are
0: you working on a new Sandman Slim novel right now?
1: Yeah, I'm working on Sandman Slim number 11 right now.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of books. Did you envision that Sandman Slim would, would have such a long life?
1: I'm thrilled it did. No, I... Originally signed up to do three of them, and I had no idea if I was going to get to do more. I had ideas, I had big story arc ideas that could go on. I was lucky enough that the first three sold, and Harper, my publisher, wanted more. And so I was able to do a first big six book arc and sort of reboot the whole series with book seven when basically the universe was not destroyed in book six. So now I'm creating a new large arc and yeah, I'm doing book 11 right now, which is both a noir story uh, and a ghost story and a story about sex and love. It's, um, you know, at this point, Sandman Slim Stark's life is very complicated. Hmm. And at the end of the previous book, Hollywood Dead, I felt like I'd kind of broken him in a really big way. Like he'd come back from hell, found himself in a city that he thought he knew, with people he thought he knew, but everything was different. Because he'd even gone a year. And people go on with their lives. And someone, even if you even if you love that person a year later you're different, and your relationship to that person is different. And if they suddenly reappear, it's not like old times again. That person who reappears wants to be old times, but it's not. And that's where I left him, in in, in a way both kind of broken and optimistic. And they're like, well, it's like I said before about hitting a wall. Stark hit a wall at the end of Hollywood Dead. But at the same time, it kind of left him with, a certain optimism in that okay i have to i have to create my life now i can't go back to my old life the only thing to do is to lie down or to make a new life and book 11 is where we start seeing stark is kind of cr- trying to stumbling into a whole new life and it's it's both about his emotional life, but it's also a lot of magic, a lot of people getting punched. Stark has to solve an old cold case murder. Mm.
0: Now, you know, I'm sitting here in this wonderful apartment in the middle of, of San Francisco, and I was thinking, we're in the middle of a city. You like to write about cities, don't you? I like you? cities. And I I'm a city it, person. I guess this, this, uh, you won't be moving out to the farm and giving us oh. any pasturals anytime soon.
1: What, what, what a nightmare that would be for me. <laughs> I was just up in Pullman, Washington, which is very near the border with uh, Moscow, Idaho. And there's a lot of green up there. I was at a science fiction convention, Moscon. And on the one hand, it was very nice. But on the other hand, like every night I thought, are they going to wicker man me? <laughs> I mean, that's what the country is to me. It's like, where, where are the people with the chainsaws and where's the wicker man? So I, I like cities. I, you know, I'm much less afraid of um, crackheads than I am of like, uh, than I am of things that live in the trees or live in the shacks on the edge of the uh, farmstead.
0: I've been speaking with Richard Cadry. His new novel is The Grand Dark. Thank you for joining me, Richard.
1: Thanks. It's been a lot of fun.